We are beginning a new series this, uh, this week, a series that will take us through most of the spring. It is a series on the teachings of Jesus called from a discourse that Matthew records called the Sermon on the Mount. It is one of the most practical, profound, daunting series of teachings in the history of any kind of spirituality and certainly in the New Testament. We are going to be going through it rather slowly. This morning, we're going to start with one of the very first lines of it, one of the first of the Beatitudes. And so we are glad that you are here wherever you are in your journey of life and faith. We think this is going to be a helpful way to understand the gospel of Jesus, whether you're a skeptic or whether you have been a Christian almost all of your life. You're welcome here. And so we are going to read this morning the Beatitudes. I have also printed on the back of your bulletin a secondary text from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. The title is a little um, misleading. There's a typo there. But we will be referring to that later on in the sermon, and we'll walk through that. Right now, for the reading of God's Word, we're going to look at the Matthew 5 passage. And here to help us with that, Kingsley. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Uh, If you are here and you are a Christian, you are probably familiar with the temptation that I am about to describe to you. I have had it for years and I have seen it become ubiquitous in the Christian world. If you are a skeptic, this will be new to you, but listen in, this might be instructive. And that is this. So many people, after they get to a certain level of maturity and still find themselves struggling to keep moving forward as they sense it in their Christian life, look for what I call the magic bullet, the one thing. The one thing that if they just grasp is, will move them to another level, another tier of Christian life and freedom and love and, and joy. And so they're looking for the pill. They're looking for the one thing. Here this morning, we get the closest thing to the one thing that Jesus ever gives us. Jesus here is filled with popularity. There are crowds following him and seeing them, he goes up on a mountain. Scholars have have wondered if, if Matthew adds that element, that narrative element in to make us sort of think about someone else who went up on a mountain, because Jesus is about to teach about what it means to live as a follower of him. And I 
Scholars think that Matthew might be wanting you to see in Jesus a kind of a second Moses. Moses went up Mount Sinai, of course, and got the original law of God, the Ten Commandments on tablets. Jesus, in this sermon, will speak about the law of Moses and interpret it for us. And so scholars wonder if he is sort of, Matthew is positioning him to look like the new Moses, because indeed Jesus is the the new and final Moses. He may be. But here, we will start where Jesus starts, the most famous and prophetic discourse in the book of Matthew, and perhaps one of them in all of the New Testament, with the first of these Beatitudes. We've shared all of them because they make a whole. They are shaped in a certain literary way. The first one, the one we'll be looking at today, is found in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last one, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Verse 10, speaking of that same persecution says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the unifying theme here of this passage. It is the unifying theme of the whole discourse, and it tells you that these two, the first and the last, are bookends, and their shade is meant to go over all. In other words, this first one we do, blessed are the poor in spirit, is not just one of many in a list. It's the one which colors the many and is the foundation for them. And we are going to look now at that first beatitude, because here we will learn the height of God's promise, the depth of our problem, and the beauty of God's power. The height of the promise, the depth of the problem, and the beauty of God's power. Three words here in this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Three phrases, excuse me, catch our attention. First one's a word. Blessed. In the Bible, to be blessed means to find favor with God. It can literally be translated happy, and we do that all the time. You see these hashtags, hashtag blessed, all over the place in our social media. But that's your own sense of feeling good. What the gospel means is that God, the God, the God who is, the God who is there, has come near you in favor has poured out his favor and love towards you. And you are experiencing that. It is not a subjective feeling, but an objective status that you have noticed. You may feel blessed subjectively, but not be blessed as is defined here. You may be blessed by God objectively, but not feel blessed because you're going through a time of trial or suffering or something is going on with friends around you. But what means to be blessed is the sense that God is favoring you. Secondly, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? This phrase only appears once in the Bible. It's an idiom. It's an expression. The key word here is the Greek word that means poor. It has a deeper connotation than just what we think by poverty. It means technically mendicancy which means that you need to be reduced, sorry, that means that you are reduced 
to having to rely upon someone else to meet your basic needs for food and life. Simplistically put, reduced to begging kind of poverty. Reduced to relying upon others just to be able to live. That's a level of humility that we don't normally talk about. It's not the regular run-of-the-mill humility that you and I see in our culture and all kinds of people manifest. Many people from all walks of life, from all kinds of spiritual backgrounds or secular backgrounds and beliefs have what we would normally call humility. They don't attract attention to themselves. They're very other-centered. They serve quietly in the background. They love doing so. You and I know a ton of these people. I grew up with a mother like that. It didn't depend on her spirituality. It was just who she was. Perhaps that's why Jesus did not just use the word humble here, lest we be confused. He uses a much more pungent word. Blessed are those who realize they are spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Spiritual beggars. People who realize they do not deserve to be with God. People who realize that they are spiritually completely unable to get to God by themselves. They need help. Their best moral and ethical conduct doesn't come close to the standard he expects and requires. Jesus, by the way, will say this time and time again in his teachings. He will say it sometimes a little cryptically. To the religious leaders of Judaism in his day, Jesus said, Those who are well, Luke chapter 5, verse 31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's saying it in parable form. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, he continues. Now, he didn't mean that his hearers included people who were righteous. He meant that all of us should consider ourselves, in this sense, sinners. The Apostle Paul, who himself was a quote-unquote righteous Pharisee in the eyes of most Jewish people, when he met Jesus, realized he wasn't at all. He was a spiritual beggar. And he would say to us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus said a parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. (laughs) Not spiritually impoverished. But the tax collector standing far away, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus comments, I tell you, the man, this man, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says over and over, the only way into the kingdom that God has set up. And the only way forward in the kingdom that Jesus runs is through a kind of spiritual beggarliness that says, I need grace all the time. So here's the promise of the gospel. If you are that kind of humble, spiritually beggar who realizes that you need God and God alone, Yours is the kingdom of heaven. God will come all the way down to where you are, and he will lift you all the way up to where he is. The very first scripture I remember reading 
when I had gotten to law school was Psalm 40, which starts with these words. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet upon a rock and gave me a a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. That's someone who understands their need for grace. The promise is this high. If you admit spiritually that you're a beggar, that you need help, that you need grace and purely grace from God to be acceptable to him, then God in his grace will come to you all the way to where you are and bring you all the way to where he is. That's the height of the promise. Now let's look at the depth of the problem. Why is Jesus starting his whole discourse with this requirement? Why does he need to teach this again and again? Why is it that the chief opponents of Jesus in the Gospels are the most moral and quote-unquote righteous? Because Jesus knows us and he knows our inner beings. He knows that deep down we don't want to believe that we're spiritual beggars. We want to believe that we are spiritually right. And by the way, here, I don't just mean religious people. I mean everyone in our culture. I grew up going to church. It was very ritualistic. It was very hypocritical. I thought it was filled with self-righteous people. And so as soon as I got out of high school and left for university, I left it. And then I dived into becoming a pretty typical progressive activist on my campus. And there, in the midst of all these very sharp, really intelligent uh, progressive activists, guess what I found? A bunch more self-righteous hypocrites. It started with my professors who are teaching us all this amazing social justice stuff, but we're sleeping with their TAs, two of them. It kept going with all my friends who, while we were spouting all the politically correct progressive mantras and working toward them, we found ourselves just as filled with envy, ambition, resentment, pride, vanity, self-absorption as anyone I'd met in my church-going years. Except we were more educated, we were more evolved, we were more sophisticated, so we had four-syllable words to hide and to justify some of our behaviors. I remember it hit home very powerfully on a trip to New York. A bunch of us who thought we were the cool kids, we got on a bus all the way to New York City because we wanted to join a massive protest against nuclear proliferation and environmental pollution. And there we went on the march and we thought we were so amazing and then we resented people who didn't go on the march but went straight to Central Park because it was a free concert for us marchers. And all those, all those New Yorkers who didn't really care about anything, he just went straight there and got the, got the best seats on the grass. And then I remember the way we gossiped about each other and mocked New Yorkers for being so American and simple-minded. You've never had that happen, right, as a Canadian? <laughs> never been in a conversation where we mock Americans for being unsophisticated. Of course we do. So two years later in my senior year, I remember sitting down with the chief editor of the Miguel Daily. She was quietly part of Gay McGill. She was part of the center of the progressive movement at McGill. And she said, why have you withdrawn from being with us? And I looked at her and I said, to be honest, I see no difference between us and the religious hypocrites I walked away from when I left high school. The problem is in both camps. The self-absorption, the selfishness, 
and the self-righteous hypocrisy. And I know it's in me. I need a better answer. She said, no, no, if we just do more education, people are just ignorant. If we can protest more and make people more aware and advocate better. I said, all this is doing is making us more hypocritical. You know about Professor so-and-so. She did. You know about this. She did. I said, the problem isn't outside of us. It's in all of us. I need an answer powerful enough to break it in me and you. And she just looked at me and she looked away. I remember thinking, you know, if you weren't gay, I'd ask you out. (laughs) She was so great. And then she just looked back at me, and she got up and walked away. That was 30 years ago. Does Does it not sound like that could have just been yesterday? We're still there. Churches are still filled with people who struggle with self righteousness. And the secular progressive culture is still filled with people who struggle with just the same thing. Our present name and shame culture is just as judgmental, just as pharisaical, just as filled with self-righteous and hypocritical people as any other institution because we are all human. You see, there's something about being humans, no matter how religious or irreligious we are, that embedded deep within our own DNA, there's a part of us that wants to take credit for things, receive applause for stuff, that wants to be made much of, that wants to be found worthy of whatever standard, whatever test is out there. The Bible, the gospel calls it pride. I saw an IQ test offered on social media a couple days ago, and I went, hmm, boy, wouldn't I like to make Mensa? <laughs> yeah, whatever. You see, the, the, the gospel calls that pride. It's the di- desire for self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-credit, being made much of. You have it, and so do I. C.S. Lewis, professor of literature at Oxford and Cambridge, a late convert to Christianity as an adult, put it this way. There's one vice of which no one in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are actually guilty of it themselves. There's no fault that makes someone more unpopular and no fault of which we are more unconscious of in our own self is this vice I'm talking of, which is pride. It is the essential vice, the utmost evil. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride has been at the center of our human DNA since the beginning. Since the very first moments, the first chapters of Genesis talk about the origins of humanity and our relationship with God and that moment of rebellion and alienation when we heard a voice that say, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. And in our pride, we listened to that dark and evil voice and we decided we wanted to be like God to be exalted, to be worthy, to rule, to control. And we do still. If you're here and you're a skeptic, I want to tell you something about your skepticism. Your skepticism has many layers. You'll have an intellectual, intellectual layer of skepticism where you doubt Christianity is coherent and true. Some of you are working through that. You will have this ethical 
problem with Christianity where you're not sure it's inclusive and tolerant enough. Almost all of you are working through that. But if you get through those layers, you will find at the end a deeper layer that animates every other layer. And that is this. You don't want to give up control of your life. You don't want to have to depend upon another. You don't want to be a beggar. But Jesus says to you, as he said to me, and he says to every Christian, there is no other way. I was meeting with a very intelligent skeptic uh, just recently in a pub. He's been coming off and on to this church, seeing some of his skeptical friends come to faith. And I asked, where are you at? He said, I'm not there yet. I said, why? He says, Dan, I just don't want to give up control. <laughs> I like being able to control my life. I went, you are very self-aware. <laughs> you know yourself. Christian, he knows you. Many of you right now are thinking, this is a nice sermon. I should have brought my friend who's not a Christian because Pastor Dan's good at speaking to people who aren't Christians. This isn't really for me, though. <laughs> you know, I want some progress in my Christian faith. I want something that will help me mature in my Christian faith. Now listen to yourself for a moment and think about what you just said in your mind. I submit to you, you just outed yourself as not quite as mature as you think you are. Because the moment you think you need to progress beyond this basic is the moment you prove you don't get the gospel. You don't really get the message of Jesus. You may not really get the center of the Christian faith because the one thing that Jesus offers you is the one thing you want to put aside because you want to progress in your spiritual life because it's all about, yeah, your progress is all about you. What are you actually revealing when you think that way? Let me ask you, if it was you with me at a pub the past couple of weeks, and instead of this very self-aware skeptic, I ask you, do you like to get credit at work when a great project that you've contributed to happens? And do you get resentful when your name doesn't get mentioned? Oh, yes, you do. Do you like to give up control of your life, oh, mature Christian, when God asks you to do it? Oh, no, you don't. Neither do I. We still love praise. I still struggle with the idol of public respect. We still love control. I need to say, Christians, Jesus wasn't stupid when he, wrote this, when he said this. Did that phrase get your attention? Jesus' followers after this a couple of years after this, James and John. You know James who ran the church in Jerusalem? You know John who, who wrote the most read gospel? They had their mom come to him near the end of his ministry. In John 20, it's recorded. And she said, do you mind if my son sit at your right and your left hand when you come in power? They didn't have the guts to ask him themselves because, you know, they're sophisticated. It wouldn't be right. But what were they hungering for? Power, authority, control. Three years of hearing him teach almost every day. Do you think you're any better than James and John? There is no spiritual progress without spiritual poverty. 
Jesus said this to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and great kings exercise authority over them, but it will not be so among you. John 20, 25 and 26. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is no spiritual progress without spiritual poverty. And when you lose that sense of spiritual poverty, that sense of spiritual dependence on God, you lose your spiritual power and you stunt your spiritual progress. Christians, if you read your Bible thoughtfully, you know that the description of you becoming a Christian is a resurrection. You have been raised from spiritual death into spiritual life. That's the description the Bible gives you. I want to ask you a question. Is the power that raised you from death to life, God's grace, not enough power to progress you in that life? Because that's what you're saying. When you're telling me, move on, please, that's just the ABCs of the Christian life. Grace is not the ABCs. Tim Keller said it well. The gospel is not the ABC of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian life. I was on staff with a Christian organization as a missionary I was giving people books by John Piper, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer. I was reading Jonathan Edwards. I thought I was some hot dude in terms of my Christian maturity. And I still didn't have control over porn in my life. I was still fighting it in a dog-eat-dog battle. You know why? Because I was looking for the one thing that I'd missed. The one thing that had gotten me in. The grace of God as it poured into my life. I'd forgotten that I was a spiritual beggar. And then I was reminded. And finally, the grace of God poured into me in a new way. And the love of God thrilled me in a new way. And that love displaced my love for lust. And it broke the power. It's not the ABC. It's the A to Z. Now let's look at the beauty of his power. There's another passage quoted here in the bulletin that gives us some practical ways to think about and to appropriate the power of God through this spiritual poverty so that we can progress to spiritual maturity. This passage was written by Paul to a group of quite mature Christians. They were in the church of Philippi. That mature church had two powerful women, Neodia and Syntyche, who were leaders in the church. They had powerful groups around them, and in their maturity, they were divided. They were fighting. They were competing. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know that pride and division had started to rip the church apart. Paul is trying to reconcile them and unite them. This is how he says mature Christians who've lost that sense of spiritual poverty should act. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, rhetorical questions, yes, 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 yes. Complete my joy by being, here's what you need to do, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unite and reconcile. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, there's the problem, but in humility, there's the solution. 
It never gets old. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the definition of what humility looks like. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's our model. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. This is where the power becomes beautiful. Because what Paul is saying to you is that if you look to Christ and what He's done for you and you soak in His unconditional grace for you, His grace will overcome you. His grace will thrill you and fill you. And the Spirit of Jesus that is in you will then direct you to pour His grace and love out upon others. When the gospel comes in and then fills you up, and then pours out of you, then you know you are both poor in spirit and great in spiritual power. When I was first, in my first semester of law school, having become post-religion, post-secular progressivism, I met a bunch of Christians. (laughs) They were the first Christians I can ever met remember meeting who were not from my old, very uh, ritualistic tradition. One of them, a girl I developed a crush on, I met in the library. We were supposed to take a study break and have coffee. I went to her desk and she was reading a Bible. That wasn't what I was hoping for. (laughs) I was stunned. So she looked at me and said, okay, are you ready? And I said, why are you reading that? That ancient religious artifact? She said, why? I said, well, that has no relevance for a law student. She looked at me and stood up and said, no relevance. What's your favorite band right now? I said, U2. I'm dating myself, I know. Some of you have heard of U2. It's a band, by the way. She said, well, do you know the song 40? I said, yeah, it's kind of my favorite song. She goes, where do you think it comes from? I said, I don't know. She said, here, this is what I'm reading. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay, and he put a new song in my mouth, the song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear. How long? She said, is that not relevant to you? You're looking for something. So is he. That was Bono who wrote that when he was in his 20s. Listen to Bono a few years ago, reflecting on his life as a mature Christian. It is a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might just be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees now is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know that what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, every action met by an equal or opposite one. And it's clear to me that karma is at the very center of the universe. And yet along comes this idea called grace to append all that. 
Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions. Which in my case is very good news indeed. Because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. That's between me and God. He continues. But I'd be in deep trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep shaving cream. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend upon my own religiosity. You hear him. That's a mature Christian who still understands. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You want to grow as a Christian? Turn again and again to Christ. Turn to Jesus, soak in his grace, and then ask his spirit to help you follow him in this example of giving your life away. Grace brought me safe thus far. Grace will bring me home. Put yourself in a position where you need his grace. Put yourself in a position where you are uncomfortable. Get yourself out of your comfort zone because one way for you to continue to be in a place of spiritual need is to be in a place of discomfort spiritually. Become more public with your faith. Serve more. Give more generously. Go to a place where you need help, where you need to get outside your natural tendency towards self-dependence. Architect your life to be one of dependence because you won't naturally do it. You know why? I'm doing what I'm doing because I told God when I became a Christian, whatever you do, don't ever make me have to publicly talk about my faith. (laughs) Yeah. That was my comfort zone. But I had to architect my life. So I was outside of my comfort zone. Secondly, don't just architect your life to regularly step outside your comfort zone. Stay accountable to be dependent and a spiritual beggar. Ask others if they sense pride in you. Kingsley did that this week in a beautiful way. Uh, A little while ago, I had a Christian who I don't know very well challenge me because he said, I see some arrogance in you. It was sobering, but it was true. It was very healthy. How about this speak into your life? C.S. Lewis said, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Architect your life to be a spiritual beggar. Be accountable with others to keep you there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that grace has brought us safe thus far. Grace will bring us home. I pray for those here who are considering Christianity that they would consider the idea of giving their life to you of trusting you enough to make them acceptable to God, of being self-aware enough to know that they can't make it. I pray that you would help them to take that step. I pray for the Christians here who very often think that grace is something for new Christians, but that they need discipleship. But they don't understand discipleship is just going deeper into grace, deeper into understanding how unworthy we are and yet how beautiful you are and how delighted we can be in your unconditional love. May we be that kind of people for this city, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
All right, I've got some uh, questions here, but I always say if you have the guts to put your hand up and ask a question verbally, I will take you first. Uh, we don't get to all the questions, uh, so you can jump the queue, as it were, if you, if you want to do that. If not, I'll just go to the questions that are texted in. Yes, I see one up here. Okay, um, you speak really quickly, and I listened to way too many very loud heavy metal concerts when I was younger. I have problems with hearing, so could you slow down your question? Thanks. Is, is pride psychological or biological? On a day-to-day basis. Almost every week you get up with brilliant questions. I need to have coffee with you sometime. Uh, it's both. Um, we know that our DNA determines, our, our physical DNA determines, our genetics determine a lot of our, our physical well-being. Part of the spiritual DNA of every human being is pride. So it is within us, and therefore it would be physical in one sense. But because it's a psychological kind of DNA, I would call it both. I don't know if that helps you. Good question. Anybody else? Yes, right here in the middle. When it comes to letting you accomplish something, yes. <laughs> it is amazing how many of these questions come up. Yes, great question. If I accomplish something that I'm pretty satisfied with, I know I'm supposed to say God did it, but can I not also enjoy that I did part of it? Yes, yes, you can. Enjoy that God let you and made you and formed you and your friends and you cooperated and it was all done. But you know what? Who brought you up? Your parents. Did you choose them? No. Who gave your native IQ? You? No. Almost everything you have, you've received. And so even that great hard work ethic that you have, no offense, but a lot of that is from somebody else. And so, yes, enjoy it. But enjoy it as part of the gift of what God has done. I don't think we realize how much of what we do is really because of what others have done for us, between our parents, God, our genetics, our teachers, etc. We have done some of it. We have responded to it. But that's also part of how God has made us. So grace is all over every part of it. Absolutely. Great question. I probably didn't answer it in any way close to what you wanted to say. Okay. Uh, comment here. Regardless of how low we are. On our, oops, sorry. That was the last one. I've got to get to the first one. Here we go. Someone wants to know why I'm wearing a tie. <laughs> are you really... Okay. Uh, one of the rules of our Q&A time is I have to read any question no matter how um, relevant to the topic. Why am I wearing a tie? Uh, it's, a, it's a Christmas gift from my daughter and my wife, and I wanted to show you what a great daughter and wife I have. Good question. Not really, but that's okay. Uh, uh, give the man. Since that is the state uh, that we become Christians, is it possible on earth to ever get to a higher state than poor in spirit with the help of Jesus? No. You don't ever want to get to a higher state of poor in spirit. You always want to be a spiritual beggar. You always want to have gratitude for what's been given to you. The minute you stop being a spiritual uh, beggar is the minute you become thinking you're entitled to all the spiritual benefits you get. And that is cancerous to your soul. Great question. I don't have time for any more. I want to thank you all for asking. I'll be around for a few minutes afterwards if you have any more questions. And I am going to go now, though, to communion.
Communion is a place where we remind ourselves that we are spiritual beggars who need God to provide our daily food. Because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, broke bread and said, this is my body, which is given for you. A little while later, in that same meal, he held up a cup of wine and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which was given for you. By which he meant his body would be broken and his blood would be poured out to pay the price for our sins. Jesus became a curse for us. He took everything that we've done that deserves the label of spiritual poverty. And he canceled the debt of it for you. And he invites you to receive that grace for the first time or for the million and first time. And he presents himself to you in the bread and in the cup to do that, to refresh you in his grace. If you are here and you are a baptized believer in Jesus, this table is for you. The bread that is about to be passed around is gluten-free. The cup, the wine is darker than the grape juice. Choose according to your conviction and refresh yourself in the grace that comes all the way to spiritual beggars like you and me and brings us all the way up to God because Jesus came all the way down and went to the cross as a curse and therefore God highly exalted him above every name. That is where you will be by the grace of God when you accept him. If you have accepted him, that is where you are by his grace. Rejoice. I'm going to pray. We'll pass the elements around. Take them when they come to you in your own time. Father, I thank you and I praise you for this cup for this bread, and I pray that now you would make it spiritual food for our refreshing. I pray for those who don't know you, that they would look at the prayers in the bulletin, and they would locate themselves in their spiritual journey, and they would wonder if indeed you could come all the way down to them. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. The table is open. Enjoy.